Well, this evening our confessional lesson comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. We're going to read paragraphs 4 and 5. It's in the back of your hymnal. You can find this on page 920, page 920. And this is the chapter on the Holy Scripture. I'm going to read paragraphs 4 and 5. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it's to be received, because it is the word of God. Verse, uh, paragraph 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Well, one of the things I love about the Westminster Confession of Faith is that it begins with a chapter on Scripture. And that's because it was one of the central issues of the Protestant Reformation, scriptural authority. Roman Catholics believed and still believe that tradition, as it's passed down through the church, is on par with the authority of the Bible. And the Reformers believed that Scripture alone is our ultimate authority to settle all matters of faith and life. It's what that banner means by sola scriptura. Roman Catholics believed and believed that the church defines the Bible, and the Reformers believe the Bible defines the church. Big difference. And the sum and substance of that fourth paragraph is that the authority of the Holy Scripture is grounded in the fact that it is God's Word. And as such, it's above anything that any mere man has to say. And because the Bible is divinely inspired, that is, because it's God's own breathed-out revelation about Himself, The Word and the Word alone has full authority to tell us what to believe and how to live. And the confession makes a not-so-subtle point that just as truth is an attribute of God, so too truth is an attribute of God's Word, which is again a way of reminding us why the truth of Scripture, which is absolute true truth, has final authority in the lives of God's people. And this is actually something we hear echoed 
in one of our Lord Jesus' final prayers just before the cross. He said, Father, sanctify your people by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word, because it's God's word, has authority in our lives. But that invites an important question. How is it that you and I are persuaded of that authority? And that's what paragraph 5 seeks to address. And it really presents us with two reasons that people have confidence in and embrace the authority of Holy Scripture. First, it's content. When you examine the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you see how God's plan of redemption unfolds and you come to know that this is truth that's heavenly and and transformative and you see how all the parts of scripture fit together and you see the singularity of God's saving purpose from beginning to end in the Bible and, and you come to see that all of the Bible has a single goal to bring glory to God's great and awesome name. When you examine all of scripture, again to quote our confession, it provides abundant evidence that it is the word of God. But the second reason that you and I have confidence in Scripture, and this is paramount, is the inner work of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that last part of paragraph 5 because this is so helpful. Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And when a believer reads or, hear, reads or hears God's word, he knows it's divine because the same Holy Spirit that worked in men to record the scripture bears witness to our hearts as to its trustworthiness and authority. Conversely, when an unbeliever reads Scripture, they do so with eyes and minds that have been blinded by the God of this age. And the only way they can attain the sight they need is by the power of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. But again, for the believer whose eyes are opened as they grow in faith and in a knowledge of of God's word, the perfections of scripture that the Westminster mentioned become crystal clear. And again, to borrow the language from the confession, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, those things then begin to simply jump off the page at you. Well, this evening when we return to our study in 1 Kings, we're going to find that Ahab continues to deny the authority of God's word. And over the next couple weeks, as we march through the end of 1 Kings, we're going to learn a profound lesson from King Ahab. Those who live without God's word will surely perish. Well, let me ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22. I think we're going to read uh, down to verse 29. There we go. Although I think this morning, uh, excuse me, this evening, we're only going to get down to about verse 14. 
1 Kings 22, beginning of verse 1. This is the true word of God. Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. So he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Also Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here? That we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, had made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Syrians until they're destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hands. Then the messenger, who had gone to call Micaiah, spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophet with one accord encouraged the king. Please, let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak encouragement. Micaiah said, As the Lord lives... Whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it in the hands of the king. The king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain." as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you? He did not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up? that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead. So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I'll persuade him. 
The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now Zedekiah, the son of, excuse me, the son of Canaanite, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit from the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide. So the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord's not spoken to me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. Well, there ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he bless it to our hearts this evening. Excuse me. Here's congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were initially introduced to Ahab back at the end of 1 Kings 16. And we were forewarned of his character in the 33rd verse of that chapter. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel's anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And dear ones, that was no small feat. All the previous northern kings excelled at idolatry and wickedness, but Ahab managed to take idolatry to a whole new level. And we saw that in our previous lesson as well. There at the end of chapter 21 in verses 25 and 26a, it tells us, There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up, and he behaved very abominably in following idols. So Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel are top-shelf, first-class idol worshippers who've made it their mission to promote false worship in Israel. And as we've made our way through the saga of Ahab's sorry reign, it's been juxtaposed with the emergence of God's prophets who announced the word of the Lord. Now, the main prophet we've been introduced to, of course, has been Elijah. But what's really obvious is that Ahab's life and his reign needs to be evaluated in relationship to God's word. Or more precisely, Ahab's life and reign need to be evaluated by his complete disinterest in the true word of God. And, And the culminating lesson from Ahab's tragic and miserable life is those who live without God's word will surely perish by God's word. Those who live without God's word will surely perish by God's word. And that's writ large over this chapter as it will end with Ahab's death. 
And even in the verses we just read, you can't miss how much disdain this man had for the actual word of God. And incidentally, this also confirms, as we've read through this, uh, that his so-called repentance at the end of chapter 1 was nothing less than a sham. Well, we again find Ahab is confronted with a geopolitical crisis. You may recall that back in chapter 20, he was surrounded by Syria. And the Syrian king, a man named Ben-Hadad, was threatening to humiliate and decimate Israel. But God graciously intervened and provided Israel and Ahab a marvelous victory. But instead of administering swift justice upon the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, which was Ahab's royal responsibility, Ahab made a treaty with him that involved Syria giving back certain lands that Syria had taken from Israel, lands like Ramoth and Gilead. And now some three years have passed, and apparently Syria is reneged. Who would have thought? And Ahab wants the city. Now, Ramoth Gilead was religiously significant for Israel as a city, but Ahab's desire for it almost certainly was financial. Ramoth Gilead sat about 25 miles or so east of the Jordan River on what was known as the King's Highway, and it was one of the most important north-south trade routes in antiquity. And the person who controlled Ramoth Gilead, that city, they got to put up the toll booths, so to speak. And Ahab wanted those revenues, and so he wanted that city. But despite the fact that God had given Israel a few years earlier, just three years earlier, despite the fact that God had given Israel a surprising and supernatural victory over Syria and Ben-Hadad, Ahab has no intention of trying to take the city by himself. You see, that kind of move would have required actual faith in God and his promises, and Ahab has no such faith. So he decides to enlist the help of Judah and her king, Jehoshaphat. Now we learn back in chapter 15 that Jehoshaphat's the son of Asa, and both of them, Asa and Jehoshaphat, are described as godly southern kings of Judah. Now as we're going to see in a couple weeks, Jehoshaphat's reign was a mixed bag in a number of ways. But for now, just know that the Bible designates him as one who was generally faithful in the line of David. What we need to know for this week's lesson is that Jehoshaphat had established peace with the northern kingdom. And while we don't read this in our text this evening, we know that he had established that peace by having his daughter, or excuse me, having his son marry Ahab's daughter. Again, these were decisions that were as surprising as they were foolish, but that's really two weeks out. But I say that so we understand why Jehoshaphat was in Judah. He was probably there as an in-law. Certainly it was a royal delegation, but that's where his family was now. What isn't surprising 
is that Ahab would seek to exploit the situation. So he asked Jehoshaphat to help him and to, 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 to help him and to help Israel go and take Ramoth Gilead back. And the rather naive Jehoshaphat tells Ahab, I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. This was a royal way of saying, we're with you. Our resources are your resources. <laughs> we'll support Ukraine as long as it takes. <laughs> That's what he's telling <laughs> the Israeli king. And at this point in the narrative, we really begin to see that Jehoshaphat and Ahab, Jehoshaphat and Ahab viewed the necessity and authority of God's word in entirely different ways. You see, no sooner had Jehoshaphat expressed solidarity with Ahab and Israel than he made the suggestion that they should seek guidance from the word of the Lord. And this was a right and noble request. And, and, and what we see at first blush almost seems like, like Ahab bought into this. And we're told there in verse 6 that he gathered some 400 men together who were his prophets. And what becomes clear is that they were indeed his prophets, not the prophets of Yahweh. Now, this is not the first time we've heard of 400 prophets associated with Ahab, is it? Turn back in your Bibles a couple pages to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. This is when Elijah is about to face down the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And I want you to glance there at Elijah's order in 1 Kings 18, verse 19. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And we're told that in verse 22 of the chapter that only the 450 prophets of Baal came to Mount Carmel and so they would be the ones who were executed down in verse 40 of this chapter. So presumably the 400 prophets that Ahab summons to impress Jehoshaphat are the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table. And I should say we can't be positive about their identity, but it does seem to fit with the nature of their message. <laughs> Ahab asks them if he should go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or if he should refrain. And they said, there in the last half of verse 6, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now I want you to notice something there in verse 6, that Lord isn't capitalized. And you'll remember when Lord is capitalized in the Old Testament, it's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. When it isn't capitalized, it's, it's the word Adonai. It basically means master or ruler. And that's a word that is often applied to God, but can just as easily be applied to other leaders in very generic ways. For example, David calls Saul, my Lord. The point is, it's very clear the prophets weren't actually prophesying 
on Yahweh's behalf. What they're doing is telling Ahab exactly what his itching ears want to hear. And dear ones, the mark of a person feigning true religion or what the old Puritans would call false professors is that they pretend to want religious instruction or direction so long as that religious instruction or direction validates what they've already decided in their own mind. And one of the marks of false teachers is that they will tell false professors exactly what they want to hear. And that's what's going on with these 400 prophets. They're singing in unison the exact song that Ahab wants to hear. As one author put it, Ahab has one criteria for what makes a good prophet. And it's not, is the prophet telling the truth? It's not, is the prophet speaking God's word? For Ahab, a good prophet is one that supports his lifestyle and moral choices. That's a good prophet. And he surrounded himself with 400 false prophets to do just that. That's very profound. And it's very applicable. Applicable. That is what most people want by way of religious instruction. Someone who will give them words that supports their present lifestyle and moral choices. Well, whether it was the sheer number of these prophets or the fact that neither Ahab nor the prophets used God's covenant name at this point, this whole scene seemed very suspicious to Jehoshaphat. Perhaps because, as we'll see, for all of his faults, he actually was a man who took God's word very seriously. So he asked there in verse 7, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Isn't there one prophet in the northern kingdom that's true to Yahweh? And Jehoshaphat's faults notwithstanding, he possesses a spiritual nobility where God's word is concerned. And that will become more apparent as we look at him more closely. But in another very harrowing situation... In 2 Kings 3.11, he's going to ask exactly the same question. Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Ahab, on the other hand, he finds a true prophet to be more than a little off-putting. And his response to Jehoshaphat in verse 8 is striking, revealing, and condemning. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Now, it's important to notice that Ahab knows, don't miss this, he knows there's a true prophet in Israel. He knows there's a prophet who can reveal God's will to him. And don't miss this, that's the problem for Ahab. He doesn't want that. He, in his own mind, he's an authority unto himself, and he has zero interest in bowing to God's authoritative word. 
So in his depraved mind, he is repulsed by Micaiah's prophecies. You can probably hear him grumbling in his morning coffee. That Micaiah, he's so harsh. His tone is so confrontational. He's always confronting me with my sin. He's not nice. He's not winsome at all. He says hard things about my lifestyle. I'd like to say I don't like him, but that's not true. I hate him. But Ahab's a poster child for John 3.19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness because their deeds are evil. Ahab's confronted with light, but because his deeds are evil, he'd rather flee to the darkness and stay in the darkness. And Jehoshaphat tries to gently rebuke his in-law there at the end of verse 8. Let not the king say such things. Apparently, Ahab knows he's going to have to do something if he actually wants Jehoshaphat's help. So he begrudgingly acquiesces and sends for Micaiah. Now, while they're waiting for Micaiah's arrival, we're treated to a little prophetic pageantry there in verses 10 through 12. Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they don their royal robes and take up makeshift thrones in an open area near the gate of the city of Samaria. Presumably, this was so Ahab's 400 pseudo-prophets would have the necessary room to put on a really big show. And they're basically all saying the same thing. They're telling Ahab just what he wanted to hear. (laughs) Of course you're going to be victorious. What could possibly happen to you, Ahab? You got this, boy. (laughs) And there's even a standout in the crowd of prophets, one named Zedekiah. And he seems to have a noble name. Zedekiah actually means Yahweh is righteousness. That sure sounds like the real deal, doesn't it? But look there at verse 11. You see, he was a son of Canaanah. Now, here's the thing. In Hebrew, that word's nearly identical. Nearly identical. It's just a jot difference than the word Canaan. And Dr. John Woodhouse asks a tantalizing question. Could Zedekiah be a Canaanite prophet dressed up with an Israelite name? We can't know with any certainty. But he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And there are a couple of things we know about Zedekiah for sure. First, he's adding some drama to the scene. He's fastened some horns of iron and he's running around giving a visible prophecy to Ahab. This is what you're going to do to the Syrians. You're going to gore them until they're destroyed. We know that about him. He's adding some drama to the situation. The second thing we know for sure is that he's a false prophet, along with all the 400. We know that because their prophecies won't come to pass. They're liars. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, because it tells us there how Israel 
was to identify true and false prophets. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. We're going to pick up at verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And I'll put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. In Acts 3, we learn that ultimately this prophet is the Lord Jesus. Verse 19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So it's a capital punishment to be a false prophet in Israel. Verse 21, now if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And the things that Zedekiah and the other 399 prophets are prophesying, are not going to come to pass. Ahab is not going to gore the Syrians. He's not going to destroy them. The Lord's not going to prosper him and deliver them into the king's hands. What will happen, spoiler alert, is that despite Ahab's best efforts to manipulate the situation and make Jehoshaphat a sitting duck, a random archer is going to send off a random arrow and it's going to find the one place of vulnerability in the king's armor and he's going to die. Because, of course, the arrow isn't random at all. It was an arrow of God's sovereign direction. Because Ahab's tried to live without God's true word. And the result is he'll surely perish by God's word. Now, I do realize that Zedekiah and the other prophets, they start using the Lord's covenant name in verse 11 and forward, but I tend to think they they were listening. They knew what Jehoshaphat had said, and now they're simply adapting their lies. The truth is, all 400 prophets should have been executed. And what will happen is that God's going to sovereignly use them to execute a treasonous king. Well, while Ahab and Jehoshaphat are sitting through some prophetic theater, this messenger finds Micaiah. And he has some advice for the Lord's prophet there in verse 13. Now listen. The words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And this really does have a tone that sounds more like counsel than command. He's saying, look, Micaiah, you you don't want the hassle. Don't buck the tide. All you got to do is join your voice with the other 400 prophets. Give King Ahab the courage you know that he wants. Just, Just do this, Micaiah. Easy peasy. And certainly... I. If 400 prophets who have the king's ear are all giving the same counsel, why why would you want to say anything different? 
clearly, this is what all the cool prophets are prophesying. How can such a large majority be wrong? And there are probably about a hundred reasons why Micaiah should accommodate the message of the 400. But there's one reason he couldn't. He had to proclaim what God told him. It wasn't more complicated than that. And it's never more complicated than that. He didn't have the liberty to adjust the message because it didn't fit the majority position. And so he tells the messenger in verse 14, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Dear ones, if you want to pray for the church, pray for that, that God will continue to raise up men who will say whatever the Lord says in his word, that's what I'm going to speak. That's what faithfulness looks like. And Ahab and and the 400 false prophets and and the messenger who's gone to find Micaiah, they've all made the mistake, mistake of thinking that Micaiah was the one responsible for the message he proclaimed. They're thinking, well, if Micaiah really wanted to, he could speak a kinder, gentler word. Maybe he'd be more like Zedekiah. But he couldn't. Whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And that's why Ahab hated him. He hated the truth. And he hated the God of truth. And so he necessarily hated the one who proclaimed that truth. And there was only one thing Micaiah could do to satisfy Ahab. Join in the chorus of liars. Tell the king what he wants to hear or face the king's wrath. But as we're going to see next week, the safest person in this passage was Micaiah. Ahab is the one who will face the king's wrath. Well, this passage is going to take some very interesting turns and twists. But Micaiah is truly a fascinating individual. Apart from this little section where he's interacting with Ahab, we don't know anything about him. He doesn't appear before this event. He won't appear after these events. He's just a faithful person that God used and he wouldn't compromise. Dear ones, we live in a world that's filled with chaos and lies where there are leaders and kings clamoring for power and they want religious institutions and religious leaders to confirm them in their sin and their wickedness and their immorality to say just what you're doing is right. And the church needs to know that we have the truth and we're in desperate need of men who will say whatever the Lord says to me, that I'll speak. 
You see, ultimately, the king of kings is the one who's full of grace and truth. He's the one who's described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the Lord Jesus. He's the truth. He's the one we proclaim. And it's his gospel that has the power to overturn a world of darkness. May we be bold with his truth. Amen. I'll give you a minute to ask any questions if you have any. And I will tell you really, ideally, it would have been better to preach verses 1 through 40 in one section. But I didn't think you wanted to stay here till 9. So. so as you're reading this, though, understand that's one big unit of thought, really, this whole section. So we're breaking it up a little bit. But any questions or comments or Our great God, we thank you and bless you for your mercy. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the way it was held with conviction by this man of God. And we pray that you would raise up for your people, men and women of like conviction, who are unswerving in their commitments to the truth of your word. Bless us as we go from here and know that that we are men and women who stand on the sure foundation of your word. And bless us in this coming week. Help us to be godly witnesses for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you to stand, brothers and sisters, and receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people said,